Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, our subject is Christian Zionism. And I think we're going to title this Why Christian Zionists Love Bible Scrabble. They also play what we know as to be called Bible Bingo. They seem to pop up verses all over the place. First of all, Christian Zionism, when you really think about it, is an example of an oxymoron. And as Dictionary.com defines oxymoron, is a figure of speech by which a locution produces an incongruous, seemingly self-contradictory effect, as in Great Depression, Jumbo Shrimp, Clearly Confused, Pretty Ugly, The Same Difference, and Christian Zionism. Well, when you think about it, Zionism actually was a political movement started in the 19th century. And I remember a few years ago arguing with some, actually some friends about Christian Zionism. They said, well, it was a religion. I said, no, it was, it's a political thing. But in reality, it really has become a religion. It's a cult religion. And we see that in our last podcast, this Paul Wilkinson, who came up with the term of Christian Palestinianism, basically claims they are a religion as Christian Zionists, according to them, their true interpretation of Christianity and so forth. And so we want to kind of address this from some different angles. Chuck has just come back from a, an interesting experience at the fair, and he's encountered some Christian Zionists, as he described it. I'll let him describe what happened there. I think that's going to be kind of interesting. But I'd like to start out with just a, a few things from the New Testament a lot of, of what the Christian Zionists base their belief on is from Genesis 12, and that's where Abraham is given the promise. And we've covered that very well in our documentary, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and Turning. So we want to focus, uh, in addition to some passages in the Old Testament, but we also want to look at some new passages which... I think they make Christian Zionists wiggle a little bit. And here's where, here are some examples from Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we like to substitute the word Judean in there. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed for from faith for faith, as it is written, the religious shall live by faith. And then in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Judean first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Judean first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And then Romans 10 Verses 11, 13, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Judean and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Galatians 3, we talked about that in a recent podcast, but there are several verses that I like in there. Verse 10 through 14, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise through faith. And then verse 16, the famous one, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance come by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And that one we can talk about. There may be some something there that the Christian Zionists could point to, saying that that really means it's an everlasting covenant. But it should be annulled or be more clear by this passage in Galatians 3, the, at the end of the chapter, verses 25 down to 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Judean nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then lastly, in Colossians, verses 10 and 11, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Judean, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So that would kind of indicate that God's not in the discrimination business he shows no partiality to anyone that wants to accept Jesus. So let's open now. From our last program, we one of the things we want to start with, Craig had some questions for William I think would be interesting, particularly germane to this subject we're talking about, what a Christian Zionist believe and how do you address some of these beliefs. Craig? Oh, thanks, Tom. The question that always seems to come up when we ask is, what is a Christian Zionist? And we have made up by definition as someone who believes that the restoration of Israel as a state in 1948 is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And so the question I have to William and anybody else who wants to chime in, where in the scriptures justifies that? Because, Tom, the scriptures you read just prior, it talks about the salvation, and the, the, the salvation message is to everyone, and we, we all understand that. We all know that. But we get into the uh, the John Hagee dual covenant, where there's one covenant that's continually running 
for the Jews and, a, and another covenant for the Christians. Kind of that dual covenant mentality. Also, when I did, I did a search on, on trying to find out what are the scriptures in the Old Testament that justify and support the uh, restoration of Israel in 1948 as a fulfillment. And all the scriptures that I looked at were basically talking about the return from the Babylonian captivity, whether they be Ezekiel or Jeremiah or uh, some other places, that those scriptures were fulfilled with the return back with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and all those guys. So I have a hard time finding justification for a fulfillment of prophecy in 1948. That's what uh, the question I have to you, William. Okay, well, thanks, Greg. Well, there is no prophecy that actually speaks to Israel in 1948. Of course, this is based upon the fact that they are claiming to be exiled since A.D. 70, which they acknowledge, and which is a Bible uh, topic. Uh, there is such a thing as the exile of Israel from the point that they were cut off from the land in 70 A.D., but that was actually the end of God's covenant with them. Now, so basically what they're doing is they're saying, okay, we have been exiled, and this is not something that just the Christian Zionists say, or even the Zionists, this is also said by true Torah Jews. They believe that they are exiled, but they go different roads with it. One will say that we are exiled and we are not supposed to forcefully enter back into the land. We're not supposed to take up arms and take the land, etc. We're to wait until the Messiah comes. Uh, which they believe is, is yet future, and so they are waiting under the instructions such as Jeremiah gave to be peaceful in the land, to build houses, to make peace with the nations, etc., and that's how they live their, their lives. Whereas on the other side, we have those who believe that the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant spoke about Israel receiving this land as an everlasting possession, and they have chosen to forcefully go back into the land, which is against Torah and a violation of Torah based upon what I had said earlier. Now, passages that they will use to uh, claim that are you know, a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of passages such as Genesis chapter 12, where it says, I will bless those who bless you and uh, curse those who curse you, etc. And so they'll use those passages and make this what we call this gigantic leap of logic from passages that refer to Abraham and that were fulfilled as were stated earlier in Galatians chapter 3 regarding the seed because uh, Genesis 12 verse 3 and I believe it's verse 7 actually talks about the seed which was channeled through Isaac Genesis 21 9 and also 22 18 uh, and fulfilled through Jesus Christ Galatians 3:16 and the passages that were mentioned 26 through 29. So from that they reason that this is the fulfillment of 1948. So it's it's you know it's one of those things where you can't wink because if you do they'll throw 1948 in and and suggest that it's a part of Bible prophecy. But another text that they would use would be Romans chapter 11 that says and so all Israel shall be saved and so they would use that to say this was not the church this was natural Israel, and since there is yet a prophecy speaking of the fulfillment of all Israel, then this must be the regathering of Israel in 1948, and therefore in the land waiting on the Messiah. But those would be a couple of texts that I would suggest that they would use to teach that. Well, I was wondering what, what is the answer to that last uh, response to that last claim. Okay. Well, uh, the first thing is to recognize 
that the passage is to start with the context. And, you know, you could start as early as chapter 10 in looking at this context, but the prophecy is speaking of Israel saying that God had a desire to save them, and yet they refused to accept him. However, there were some who obeyed the gospel. The other part of that question would be in Romans chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. He says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So God has never saved all of Israel in any dispensation. There's always been the remnant that he has saved. So when we talk about Israel, we can't be talking about all of the nation indiscriminately because that has never happened and it was never the will of God. So in verse 28 he says, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord would make a short work upon the earth. Now as you open chapter 11, the question arises, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? Well, Paul says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he's saying, I am of the seed of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. So therefore, my genetic relationship to Abraham is established. In other words, the fact that he became a Christian did not rule out the fact that he still had his relationship to Abraham as far as his bloodline was concerned. So that was his proof that God had not cast away his people. So in that sense, God is still dealing with national Israel, but national Israel has now converted to Christ. And so in verse 7, a key text in this chapter, he says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. That's the nation. But the elect have obtained it. That's the remnant. And remember, he said he was going to cut the work short in righteousness that a remnant would be saved. And so he says, the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now, he defines Israel as both Jew and Gentile coming into Christ, just as the text was quoted earlier in Romans 1, verse 16, and other passages. And so in verse 25, when he says blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, what he's saying is, well, part of the nation was blinded. That's the part that was in unbelief. But the other part was not in unbelief. They were the ones who did accept Christ, and the Gentiles were coming in with them, and they constituted all Israel. These were still fleshly Israelites, but they were Israelites who had obeyed the gospel, and thus all Israel would be saved, Jew and Gentile, in Christ. Very good. Okay, guys, the question I still have is who is ethnic Israel? Especially, uh, I, I read Arthur Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe, and learned all about the, the Khazarian uh, Jews and so forth and so on, the Ashkenazis. So, I mean, obviously, God would know who, who truly is the seed of Abraham ethnically. But how can we say that the people that claim to be Jews today are ethnic Jews just because they say they are. And like I, I mentioned last week, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. said he was a Jew. You can be a Jew by a convert. You can be a Jew by, you know, I guess ethnicity, if you could, if you could trace back far enough. But so how do we know who the Jews are just because they say they are? Craig, I can respond to that one. In practice, as we carry out our mission, Jesus said at one time his mission was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, meaning... Uh, the people who faded away and didn't know what they were, and he didn't mean the rabbis when he said the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
our, our mission is kind of the same way. It's our self-chosen mission is the mission to the deceived Christians who think they're following Christ but have become Christian Zionists. And many of us have actually been to some degree in that boat, and we all know people who are totally over, overboard on being trained to be or corrupted to be Christian Zionists. Uh, I think uh, Tom called it a corrupted religion when he started out. I believe that's exactly right. It's a corruption of Christianity. I was at a little fair where I was invited to help. It, it was actually a great big fair in Denver, uh, hundreds and hundreds of booths, and they had a section that was set off for tax-exempt organizations, and one of those are uh, two or three local organizations that are, all, that are all very concerned about the Palestinian situation, including Friends of Sabeel and a couple of other ones that uh, went together. And I know these people, and they've helped me, and we, we know each other. So um, I was asked to come and help. And a very typical situation, just like being in front of a church, Craig, when you go into these churches, you have the same situation. You have the occasional opportunity to testify to somebody about what you believe and what's wrong with Christian Zionism. And, uh, of course, at this uh, Palestinian booth, we started out showing people what was going on with the occupation. They had the maps and the pictures and the wall and so on, and a lot of, uh, a lot of things to demonstrate to people how the Palestinians have been abused. And uh, a lot of the people are very secular. They look at them and they shake their heads one way or the other, move on, sign up for a newsletter. But two people I can recall that were really interesting. One of them was an amateur victim of Christian Zionism, as I concluded after talking to him. The other was an absolute professional Christian Zionist. And uh, I had these conversations with both of them, and I found out that you don't have time to quote much scripture when you're doing this, uh, if you're able to quote scripture. You're basically uh, trying to make a point. And I've always find that you need to have with you a New Testament because you need to have something you can refer to when you actually talk to someone who believes in Christianity, who believes in Jesus. The innocent victim came along, was a, a very attractive man of maybe 35 years old. He listened to the story about what was going on in Palestine, at which I was explaining to him in a secular way. And then he, uh, he turned to me and he said, well, I'm a devout Christian. And I can't go against the chosen people. And that ended the conversation, or at least he thought that ended the conversation. I'm a committed Christian, so I can't go against the chosen people. So here you have this chosen people idea, which he has absolutely ingrained into him. And, of course, a root of Christian Zionism is the belief that the present-day occupants of the state of Israel are uh, God's chosen people. But that's also transformed from them to anybody who's Jewish. That's why the use of this Jew word is so important in the Bible. The misuse of it is so important in the Bible. Because wherever you state the J-U-W word, people automatically think about them. They, they don't think necessarily of Israeli Jews. They think of American Jews, all Jews. And suddenly they're all chosen people. They all can do no wrong. And, of course, none of them could possibly lie. This, uh, this is a given. So this man was ready to walk away. And uh, at that point, that was my first inkling, and so I grabbed my New Testament on my pocket real quick, and I said, wait a minute, uh, we, have, we have more to talk about. You as a believer, obviously, believe Jesus' words, and then I quoted Galatians 3, as, as we just had quoted today, about there's no Jew or Gentile, uh, all are one 
in God's eyes, followers of God. Do you know those? Do you know those? Do you know that scripture? Are you familiar with that? And he said, "Yes, I am." And he said, "You have a very good point there. We're all together followers of Christ, can be anyway." And he said, "But he said again. He repeated, I can't go against the chosen people.'" <laughs> so he he heard it. He heard what I said, but it had not soaked in. I can't go against the chosen people, and so. He walked away. Now, will he be affected by what he saw and what he heard and so on? Or will he go right back and fall under the same influence? Usually when you talk to these people, that's about all the time you have. I'm, I'm sure you agree, Craig. You know, you've, you've done this and Tom's done it and several yeah. others have done these things in front of churches. When I went back to the booth, there was a lady standing there and she said, Chuck, I overheard you. And that was really good. I think he was impacted by that, and he, she said, I had a big argument with a booth down the way a little ways that have the big Israeli flag hanging in front of it, and they say they're Christians too. Would you go down there with me? So I went with her, and we walked on down there, and uh, there we came upon a professional Christian Zionist of the most plain and simple group that you could possibly think of. Uh, they had a big sign hanging from their booth, and it said, a Messianic Jewish Congregation, and the name of it was Menorah Missions. And uh, there was a, a man called Reuben, whose last name was Griebenstadt. And he was the pastor in charge of a, a, a large Christian Jewish church in Denver, Colorado. And so he engaged me in a talk, and it kind of started out the same way as the one with, with the guy in front of our own booth. And uh, he made a big point about how we were all one in Christ. And, of course, I agreed with him. And then I asked him about Galatians 3. Did he uh, agree with that text? And he said, absolutely. We're all one in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile. We're all one. And so I took a different tact with him because I knew I needed to. And I said to him, fine, then you believe that the Palestinians, uh, of course, are God's people too. The Phil I called them the Philistines. I said, you believe the Philistines are God's people too. Can you then, as a Christian pastor and leader, justify taking the life of a Palestinian child? Or, or, or let me go you one better. Can you uh, justify looking the other way while someone else takes the life of that child? And uh, he said, well, they don't do that. Uh, yeah. Actually, the Palestinians are killing the Israelis. So, you see, this is when I knew he absolutely was a professional because he'd been to Israel and he's had lots of experience and he's been around for 30 years doing this. And so the conversation went on a little bit like that. And then he went on to explain to me, Israel's, we got in the land, and he said, Israel's title to the land has nothing to do with the salvation of Jews. That was a promise from God to the Jewish people. And then he asked me, Did you, do you defy God? You want to know that I defy God. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. How can you prove that you are, have any uh, blood of Abraham in your veins? You're claiming this is, this is an ethnic thing, and you don't really look like Abraham. You don't look like any, you have any Arab blood. I don't know where you came from, but your name suggests you came from anywhere but Palestine. What do you have to attach yourself to Abraham in the way of, uh, uh, of proof of your lineage? Uh, well, he turned his back on me, of course, and said, look, if you can prove that the uh, Israelis, we'd had a conversation about, uh, prior conversation was more about how many Palestinians had been killed in 
Operation Cast Lead. The number is 1,400 and about 400 were children. And he denied that entirely. He said, in essence, he said it never happened. But he said, that's propaganda. And, and so then as he, he turned his back and walked away from me. He said, here's my card. If you can send me proof that this actually happens, I'll listen to you. So that was the way he ended the conversation. So I went away pretty clearly believing that he knew he was lying to me. And he's a devout and dedicated Christian Zionist who runs a business of bringing Christians into a church that essentially is a synagogue under the name of uh, Messianic Christianity. The other guy is the victim. He could actually be going to the same church. He enters the same door, and uh, he listens, and he's, and he's been beguiled by this. So in coming down to dealing with people, it, it requires very simple tactics. It requires knowing a couple of verses. It requires knowing your facts about situation on the ground, and essentially not afraid to challenge these people a little bit in what they claim they believe. And that's about all that you get time to do in these situations that you have. Very good. It does usually take quite a, a number of times to even make a dent uh, in somebody. Are there any other questions? Lori, did you have any questions or thoughts about the subject? No, I was just trying to um, just listen carefully to what Chuck and what William were saying and just trying to equate it to how I experienced um Christian Zionism, and the one thing I do remember is that I think people underestimate deception, especially religious deception, because I think that's what my problem was. I was just out and out deceived into believing that Christian Zionism was scriptural, and that's why I asked the question earlier about what are the foundational scriptures, because now that I think about it, there really aren't any that I can see. And I, I remember hearing over and over and over, um, those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. You know, if you just keep hearing something over and over again, at some point most people are going to take it in. And so I, I, I look now and I realize there really is not a lot of scriptural basis for the message of Christian Zionism. It's mostly just a lot of rhetoric. Yeah, and let me comment on Craig's question just a little bit. You know, he asked how could these people prove that they were Israelites or connected to Abraham, I guess, in, in, in some way. Is that kind of the question, Craig? Was that supposed to right, be Right, that's exactly right. They, they always talk about our forefathers, Sarah and Abraham, and just like, like they were my great-grandmother. Okay, well, first and foremost, Abraham was not a Jew. Abraham was a he Hebrew. He was a, um, and, and that means beyond the river Euphrates. He was a Gentile, and that's the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter four that he was, uh, he believed in God and was accepted. You know, God granted him righteousness while he was yet uncircumcised. So he was not part of the Jewish faith, if you please. But the other part of that, from a, there are several studies today. You already mentioned Arthur Kessler's work, which, you know, demonstrated historically that these people are not of the seed of Abraham. There are genetic studies that are going on now that have been done by people who call themselves Jews. You know, there have been scholars in, in um, Israel who have done these studies and others demonstrating that there is no... Uh, Jewish gene, if you please. So it's not 
and ethnicity. Judaism has always been a religion. You know, it's 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 not been an an, um, an ethnic based people from the time that they came out of Egypt. There was a mixed multitude of Egyptians who came along with them, and probably others who may have been enslaved in Egypt who came with them that were absorbed into the nation. They have always had proselytes, even though they may not have been many. So, But even from that perspective, there is no gene that points them back. And here's, here's what's interesting. If people will study Genesis chapter 10, you will find that the uh, sons of Noah was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. <laughs> well, they were brothers, and they were all... Semitic people. There was only one. Nor was their common father. And they've shown that Hamitic people are Semites. As a matter of fact, there there's more Semitic, you might say ethnicity, I guess, to use that term, for the Hamitic people as there were for uh, the sons of, of Shem. As a matter of fact, not all of Shem's sons were Semitic because that really isn't a gene. That's you know, primarily referred to um, linguistics. And, of course, God confused their language at the Tower of Babel, and, and so uh, some of them could speak the Semitic language. Some of Shem's descendants could. Some of them couldn't. So from a historical point of view, you have Shlomo Son's book, who discusses this matter very thoroughly, which I would recommend to people, uh, Arthur Kessler's book, and then you have these genetic studies that are being done that says there is no such thing as a, um, as a Jewish gene. And we're not trying to be unkind to people and, and say anything but the, the most of the people who are claiming this did not originate from the area of Palestine when they have done the genetic studies they have shown that the Palestinians people who call themselves the, the Palestinians or the Philistines as, as Chuck calls them they are more genetically related to people who have a connection to Abraham than some of the people as have been stated as the Khazarian and the uh, Ashkenazi people. But these are the kind of things that people need to, to understand about them if they're going to approach it from that perspective. I have one little comment to add on what it means to be a Jew. When I was in Palestine in 2009, I was with a Church of Christ group uh, touring several countries over there. But our tour guide was the most decorated veteran of the Israeli Defense Forces, a man who is a Christian, but, you know, not really part of an institutional church. They have a large number of these clandestine home churches throughout Israel. And he, uh, you know, I've told some of you all this story before. He was shot in the head in the 1970s raiding a PLO base uh, just across the River Jordan. They had him sewn up in a body bag, but he woke up, <laughs> uh, kind of. He was in a coma. He stayed in a coma. They figured out he wasn't dead. They took him out of the body bag. He was in a coma for like 30 days, and his Christian Arab aide-de-camp read the Bible to him the whole time he was in a coma. And when he woke up, he knew that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. But uh, the point is he has this bus full of these Church of Christ people who are woefully ignorant of the Bible, and he's trying to teach them the basics. So he, he asks this whole tour group, he says, what is a Jew? And there's just silence. Nobody knows what a Jew is. I mean, we've, we've already seen, you know, all these multiple ethnicities of Israelis uh, from Ethiopia, from Russia, from New York City. We've, we've seen all these multiple ethnicities that are all over Israel. 
And he was the grandson of Bolsheviks, Jewish Bolsheviks, who came down in the 1920s to Palestine to set up a Marxist commune. But his mother's side were somewhere from near Armenia. They were Jews, too, but they were they totally different ethnicity. So anyway, after no one can answer his question, he says, it's a nationality. And, you know, I think he's right. We do often say it is a religion, but it's really not. I mean, most Jews in America are atheists or agnostics. We have the nation of Israel going into pagan idolatry. I mean, there's multiple religions, but it was a nationality, and it was made up of people of multiple ethnicities, as William pointed out. It was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. There were always multiple ethnicities in the nation, and they were supposed to have one national religion, but of course they kept corrupting it, you know, over and over again. And so it was to be an Israelite was really a nationality, and and to be and the word Judean instead of Jew conveyed a nationality, not necessarily a religion, but they were close to one and the same, even though there were multiple sects. So I've become really enamored that it was always a nationality as much as it was a religion. And that even today, being a Jew, is it's like someone in America, like my son, he wishes he was Irish. You know, so he, he wears all these Irish shirts. I mean, he has a little bit of Irish blood in him, but not enough to spit at. But he likes to, you know, make out that he's Irish. But he's an American. We're all in the U.S., but we have multiple ethnicities. People that are Jews, they're actually like claiming citizenship of the nation of Israel today dual citizenship, which, of course, is a whole other political question. All right. I appreciate everybody's comments. A lot of food for thought there. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.